Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quinn. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud is sponsored by X-Team. X-Team is a 100% remote company that helps other companies scale their development teams. You can live anywhere you'd like and enjoy a life of freedom while working on first-class company environments. I've got to say, I'm pretty skeptical of remote work environments, so I got on the phone with these folks for about half an hour and let me level with you. I've got to say, I believe in what they're doing and their story is compelling. If I didn't believe that, I promise you I wouldn't say it. If you'd like to work for a company that doesn't require you to live in San Francisco, take my advice and check out X-Team. They're hiring both developers and DevOps engineers. Check them out at the letter x-team.com slash cloud. That's x-team.com slash cloud to learn more. Thank you for sponsoring this ridiculous podcast. Welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by Andrew Peterson, CEO of Signal Sciences. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me, Corey. No, thanks for joining me. So let's start at the very beginning. What is a signal science? And given that you have several of them, what do you folks do? <laughs> um, yeah, so, so the, the, the marketing term that we, uh, that we call ourselves is a next generation web application firewall and or a runtime application self-protection tool or RASP. You can thank Gartner for, uh, for, for, for that one. But both tools essentially are about how do you protect your, your web applications, your APIs, your microservices that you're running, basically all layer seven type of uh, traffic and uh, across any type of platform that you're, that you're using it on. Um, but that's, that's essentially what we do. In order to sort of do the disambiguation between, oh, a security vendor, I've never yep. seen one of those before. Every, I guess every security vendor in most cases tends to go in a bit of a different differentiating uh, direction, if for no other reason, then it's very sad when they don't. <laughs> um, but I guess, what, what is it that makes Signal Sciences different than, yeah. I guess, the typical run-of-the-mill, uh, endless sea of folks at RSA, all independently trying to sell me something with the word firewall in it? Yeah, so that's, I'll start with this. I think a lot of it is just kind of comes from where we come from and our, our kind of background. We, we um, for better or for worse, didn't wake up uh, someday uh, dreaming to be a, a security vendor. Um, so we're sort of the... Um, uh, the accidental security vendors in, in some ways. We our, our background was actually building technology and products and security tools in-house before. So we, we um, me and my two co-founders, we worked at a, a company called Etsy. Um, it's about 10 years ago when we first started working, um, working together. And uh, Etsy, a lot of people know it's ETSY. It's a big uh, retail uh, marketplace um, based out of New York. And their backstory is actually really interesting from a technology perspective because they were really on on the forefront and, and one of the pioneers around the DevOps movement. Um, and so our, our sort of challenge and how we started working together and kind of coming up with some some of the lessons learned that, that has turned into the vendor that is Signal Sciences now um, is, you know, we, we were trying to build a security program there that was really counter to, I think, a lot of um, a lot of the kind of security programs that we had seen before, which... The, the kind of old model of security was 
Um, look, we're going to be uh, grumpy. We're not going to like dealing with engineers. We're going to blame engineers for all the bad things that they put into our, our code all the time that makes it insecure. And we're going to tell them, no, they can't do anything all the time. Um, yeah, that, 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 that doesn't really work when the goal of the entire uh, business and especially the engineering program there was about how do we empower people to um, launch code faster, to make changes quicker, to, to make uh, our systems more resilient and, and, uh, and more reliable, right? These are all the sort of tenets of DevOps um, and doing that in a culture where you're getting these siloed teams to really work together. So, you know, in, in many ways, as we built the security program there, it was it was probably one of the first DevSecOps types of, you know, I hate sort of using all these buzzwords here, but it was really about how do you get these three teams to work better together? And the lessons that we learned in the context of that were, you know, not only is it really helpful when the security teams can not just say no, but they can say, you know, yes and, um, and, and think about how they can really sort of contribute to making these teams better. But when you, when, when you actually start thinking about if we can build products as a security team that are not only incredibly easy for people to use, but also make them make the sort of engineering teams feel like they are able to learn things about the behavior of people using their applications or using their software in ways that they never were before. That's actually helping them do their job. They're actually going to want to pull and actually use those tools. And so that I think that that's been the unique um, approach that we've had to becoming a vendor is to say, like, look, if we're if we're going to go to the dark side and go to that other uh, the sort of bad place of security, which is, you know, the world of security vendorship, like we're going to do it with a lot of empathy for understanding like what actually works from from a practical perspective, because we were in-house before building a lot of this stuff. But also that our philosophy was that the only way to scale security, you know, sort of effectively is to scale it actually through the engineering teams. So so we 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 sure as heck better better be working with um, and taking their feedback into account the, the entire time. Absolutely. It's it, the hard part, I think, when you're running an application or a website or any uh, significantly scaled out service or product is security has always been one of those things that is inherently an afterthought for most of us, because everyone likes to say, oh, security is job zero, or security is the most important thing. Well, a quick look at what companies spend research and development budget on proves that is not true. <laughs> it's It always is something that, it's like insurance. No one, most people should have some form of insurance, but you don't expect your house to burn down. So it's never the number one thing you think about when you're sitting, when you're uh, setting up something new. It, but it does need to be something that, that I guess folks care about. I mean, I come from a similar perspective where I look at cloud costing. It's never job one. It's always a trailing function. How does that manifest for you, both among your clients, as well as for uh, having running a company yourself and having a good security posture internally, given that you are a security company and security issues would be problematic? I mean, it's a great question. This this harkens back to, you know, I'll just sort of use my uh, our initial experience um, when I was at Etsy in-house before, because you're really struggling over and wrestling over these issues of, you know, every security person on the planet wants to say, hey, security is the most important thing, right? And that's all that matters. And, and that's that's what we should be prioritizing first. But yeah, I was running product teams before. And and our goal of, of developing products and features and software were, we're really way more business related to say, hey, you know, we we have to get these features out because we're trying to make we're trying to help the business improve, right? We're trying to make money. We're trying to help our customers. We're trying to help people actually, you know, get get things get things done. And 
know, the initial work with our security team was they were like, hey, you have all these potential bugs or vulnerabilities in your, um, you know, in your code. So before you actually uh, can ship this to production, you have to solve these things. Um, yeah, so that, that, that doesn't really work um, because guess what? Like the business is going to, to move forward with or without security. So that's kind of the, the, the former relationship that we've, that we've seen. The thing, the thing that we've seen both with our customers now, but, but the, the, our big aha moment when we were, um, when we were doing this stuff in house before was, look, if you're going to go and you're going to talk to an engineer and tell them that they have, you know, security flaws in their code, they're going to come back and say like, well, yeah, uh, that's one of many bugs that I have. I know I have bugs in my code. My question is, why should I prioritize working on this one over other, you know, functional bugs that, that I could go solve that are actually going to help, you know, our, our product actually do better and help our customers actually use the technology better. Um, and, and in the past, I think a lot of the, the, the response from the security team was because they're like, well, because security is important and don't you not want to get hacked? You know, look, that's, I, I sort of get where that's coming from, but it's not terribly productive and it certainly doesn't sort of speak to the way I think engineers and, and especially modern engineering organizations are thinking about this stuff. They need data. Like you, you need to have some, some, some data behind why these things are important. Um, and so for us that what really changed our conversation, like around that type of thing specifically, right? Like about why should we build insecurity, you know, initially, why should I even be fixing some of these, these bugs that I know are security bugs in the first place was, well, when we could set up monitoring um, on being able to track actually what attackers are even attempting to do across, you know, especially let's just use the application itself across the different, um, you know, uh, parts of the application, it really changed the conversation, right? Like, be, like before, I think engineers really thought, and when we would have these conversations, they'd be like, well, I, I just don't think that we're actually even being attacked right now. So you know, security guy with the, the tinfoil hat over there that's that's super paranoid about everything. Of course, they're going to be screaming that we're going to be getting attacked all the time. But I, I just don't really think it's happening. So the easiest way to be able to like sort of respond to that was to say, OK, well, we set up monitoring to track like different types of attack behavior that's happening on different parts of the app. Um, and, you know, at least we could show, look, th this is the subdirectory or the or the mobile site or, you know, whatever part of the application that you're working on. And here's the actual attacks that are happening on that right now. That really made it not only real, right? Like it's like, OK, this is real data that we're looking at right now. And this is actually really helpful. But then it, it immediately actually got alignment internally in the organization to say, hey, you know, developer team, I'm not actually fighting against the security team who's just on my back all the time trying to get me to fix things. Um, you know, security team and, and development team are now aligned against the real problem, which is the attackers on the outside who are trying to get in. Um, so that, that's, that, that data and that visibility slash, um, you know, ability to have that kind of detect, de detection on that type of behavior, it, it just completely changes the conversation that you can have with, between your security and engineering teams in-house. I think there's also the, uh, we're seeing an emerging, I guess, uh, class of vulnerability mm. as far as when people wind up going to sleep at night uh, and they work in a company, their, their prayers before bed are, and finally, dear Lord, please don't let me be, yeah, be subject to a breach. But if I am, 
At least have it be something incredibly convoluted and clever, not something stupid like an open <laughs> S3 bucket or, or whatever it is that winds up. Uh, effectively, there's, there's this narrative that's entered the public consciousness that when a company suffers a data breach, that they are obviously idiots who did not invest at all in cybersecurity and they failed a very basic thing. And that it's doesn't, I don't think that narrative works anymore. I think that there's a lot of nuance to this. I think that there's a tremendous number of interesting attack vectors that need to be defended against. It, despite what we tell ourselves, it's never going to be the topmost job for a company to care about. <laughs> but this stuff still happens. And, and yes, it is a failure, especially when it's not your data that gets breached, but rather the data that you've been entrusted with. But in the public consciousness, it's still, oh, you got breached, you must hire morons. It isn't true. Right. It simply isn't. How do you, do you see that, that narrative changing at all in the public awareness, or is that a losing battle from the get-go? Well, I, I, I do, and, and I actually think it's a really important question because there's kind of two sides to this, which is one is, you know, is it a losing battle for companies to sort of try to try to change how how they're actually sort of protecting themselves in the first place and try to change their security posture? I think the second question that I think a lot about as it relates to just kind of security professionals overall is like, is there any way to win at security, like at your job? Like, are you basically just sitting there waiting to lose? Um, which I think by and large, it kind of is, or at least at least it kind of has been for a long time. Um but, but I think the thing that's, that's changing and kind of the hope that I have for the industry that's, that's changing a bit is I, I like to use the example a lot of like how operations has changed and, and, and how like sort of success for ops teams have changed. And, and I think in, in the past, you know, you sort of look 10 years ago about um, when, when ops teams and, and or DevOps teams were a lot more immature. Um, the the expectation there was like, look, we have to have 100% uptime. We will never go down. And um, and it's it's a binary concept, right? Like we're either up or we're down. Um, and, and the goal is 100%. Um, very similar to, to, to security, right? Like the goal is either we're breached or we're not breached and there's no sort of middle ground and nothing else matters. We should just try to try to be never breached ever. Trying to, and the realities of of if that can actually be happening in in the more and more complex technology world that we live in, where as you said, Corey, like there's there's more and more nuanced ways where people can actually get access to data, um, and what a breach looks like is going to be totally different in the future. Um, I think we need to really see a maturity the, the same way we've seen it on the ops side. I think like now when you look at really great ops teams and you look at sort of how the success of those ops teams is even measured in the first place is that it's not about uptime and downtime necessarily, but, you know, if you do go down, um, you know, it's only a, a, a small functional component of your application or a small functional component of the, the infrastructure. You're, you're also doing a really good job of being able to identify when those things go down and communicate that back to your, to, to your consumers. You're doing a good job of actually defining and, and fixing those things faster. And so that the success metrics are not, are you up or you're down, but it's how fast have you identified it? How small can you, can you um, contain the impact of that service outage um, how, how fast and how, how well you can actually communicate that back to your customers. Um, and, and then ultimately, you know, you're going for how, how small of an impact can you actually have on, on their business and or their lives or their use of the product. And I think that that's really where I'm hopeful and, and starting to see the security community 
go to, but also like, I, I think I'm also starting to see this from the, the consumer's expectation is that so many consumers that I, that I talk to or just, you know, friends and family even are saying like, you know, I feel like, I feel like having my data get breached on various, um, you know, companies is kind of inevitable. Um, and you know, my, their, their sort of judgment on how, how that, how that breach actually happens. Um, you know, I, I, I hate sort of picking on specific breaches, but I think like, the the Equifax breaks, for example, has continued to stay in the limelight because of how poorly it was handled and not necessarily because of the ex- exact breach itself. I mean, how many other breaches have come and gone in the last few years? And the Equifax one keeps coming up, I think, because of a lot of the ways in which the management team and or the communications around it was handled. So I think that that's the stuff where it's like, look, if you have really good communication, we can we can start sort of scoping out our, our actual architecture and infrastructure such that we can reduce the surface area or the amount of data that actually gets gets um, breached in, in a given attack. Um, those are going to be things that are I think are are bigger um, sort of success factors for security teams and security people. Um, and and I I'd like to think that's the future of what consumers are are going to look at to say hey this company really handled this well um, not not just saying oh they're just another one that got breached they must all be dumb um, but wow like you know of course they got breached because it's kind of inevitable to have that happen to some extent but I really feel like they were on top of their game they really communicated this well to me and I actually feel in some ways safer knowing that uh, they're so well informed and we're so fast to take action on it. I see an awful lot of companies with the mistaken idea that, well, we're paying a large cloud vendor to run all of our infrastructure and they have a bunch of services that they offer of varying degrees of utility. What do we need partners for? Why can't we just have be, have everything be first party and that's the end of it? And the honest answer to that is, well, have you tried it? That's why. But there's <laughs> you can't exactly say that to customers in some cases. How do you find those conversations tend to unfold? So there's a bunch of different things to un- unpack with this because I think it's yeah there, there's there's a bunch of angles to that. I, I think the first is one of the things I've heard from a lot of customers is you know let, let's use AWS an example and and sort of look let, let's actually compare AWS and Azure right like as two different platforms here. Um, the the one thing that um, folks say like AWS has a lot of features, right? They've launched a lot of different types of um, functional features around security. And one of the biggest challenges that I've heard people have using using AWS is, you know, especially if they're, it, look, it, let's say it's a development group, they actually have all the intentions of doing the right thing by setting up the right security um, features in the first place, um, but they're not security people themselves. And when they talk to their sort of, let's say, network network focused security teams, the network focused security teams don't actually give them a great roadmap for what to use in the first place. So they're kind of on their own to try to figure out what to select uh, to use from a feature perspective. And, uh, you know, they're not going to take one of all of them. They're not going to be like, OK, I'll turn on 100 different features. They're trying to figure out what are the basic ones that they start working with and 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 turn those on, and they're not really getting a whole lot of direction, I think, from um, from the Amazon folks right now. So this is one of the areas that I've heard like Azure in some ways is actually more preferable because it's a bit simpler and a lot more well defined uh, about like, hey, here's kind of a reference architecture from a security, you know, the security feature component of of what you should use when you're using this, right? So that's that's sort of step one is. I think 
folks need a little bit more guidance on what they should be using or not. Um, then step two would be, I think to your point, um, Corey, it's, uh, look, when, when they start using these features, the question is, okay, they're there, but are they actually good? And are they solving real problems? And can I automate these things? And can, you know, are they helping me to actually like stop real problems? Or are we kind of, are we reverting back to the, okay, well, if I just turn it on and I have it there, then I've covered my, you know, covered my rear and, uh, and you know, I'm not going to get in trouble from a compliance perspective or something. Um, I don't like this, right? Like, I, I think there, there are certain people that are like, okay, I have some of these pieces in place. I'm just kind of checking boxes. Cause to me, that's a reversion back to compliance based security rather than security that's really focused on solving problems. Um, but this, this gets back into, you know, this, this issue where it's really hard to find people that have a lot of not only let's, let's call them cloud and application development skills, but then also have security skills. Um, most of the people that we have in the security world have sort of a network focused, um, background and most of the application developers really know applications, but they don't necessarily know security. So that cross section between the two, I think is really, uh, it's, it's, it's hard then to set up um, systems to be able to say, hey, here's kind of the features or, or the functionality that we're expecting from these different types of products that we're, that we're gonna add on in our cloud environments so that they can actually take some type of objective view on uh, the, the value or the efficacy of that, of that feature or that function. Something you said just really resonates with specifically the idea of treating security as something beyond the checkbox. Uh, for the compliance dance. I, for anyone who's ever listened to me for more than 30 seconds, this will come as no surprise, but I have challenges when it comes to checking off box items and doing things for the sake of bureaucracy. I, I have zero tolerance for that, which makes me, well, not a great employee, but that's beside the point. It tends to make me not the sort of person you want in the room dealing with auditors and dealing with compliance because I tend to see those check boxes and get at the, okay, what is the actual intent? Totally. behind this control. What is the problem it is attempting to solve for? And you step down that path and, and try and solve the actual issues. Auditors want the box checked. They want to make sure that you're rotating your um, API credentials for AWS, your IAM users every 60 days, for example. Even NIST doesn't recommend that anymore. And the real world that we live in here, well, if you compromise a credential by checking it into a repository on GitHub, uh, there's some the time between that happening and the time you start to see it being exploited is less than a minute. Yep. It's a 90 day rotation or 60 day rotation does nothing to stop that. You're, you're in many cases, the alarm that goes off that shows that that's been compromised is the bill. Surprise, you've been mining a whole bunch of Bitcoin this month. That That's where it really tends to fall to, I guess, fall by the wayside. But you can't as, an, as a company, ever bypass compliance and say, yeah, it's a stupid requirement, so we're not going to do it. You don't get the beautiful, shiny certificate that you need to remain in business if you go down that path. But what is the, how do you reconcile that? Well, I, in general, I think the more queries of the world that can be running security programs, the better, I think, for most, for, for, for most everyone. Um, so I, like, we, we are fully in the camp of, Look, we, we like as a product category, we help to check compliance boxes for a lot of our customers. But we have we have kind of from the very beginning basically told people unapologetically, like we are not in the business of, of solving compliance for people. We're in the business of solving security problems. And if we can do both of those things at the same time, great. Um, but 
you know, the, the, the people we work with and the people that we're really seeing start to take over the security industry are really those that are um, highly focused and highly sort of engineering focused on exactly what you're saying. You're like, I'm looking to understand what the actual problem is I'm trying to solve and then come up with solutions to those problems. So I think there's probably a series of um, uh, security vendors out there that are terrified about this movement that's happening where you're getting more and more um, sort of less and less auditors controlling security programs, although there's certainly still compliance and audit programs within every company, including our own. Um, and, and there's an absolute sort of uh, I think there's a, there, there is a, a world where, where those things are actually still valuable, um, but splitting compliance and security, I think, is actually quite important um, to, the, to the future of being able to solve these problems. So, yeah, as it relates back to, to, to the original question around, like, you know, how do we, how do we sort of separate um, <laughs> checkbox compliance that's not actually doing anything from real compliance? One of the, one of the positive movements I've really seen is that the, the actual compliance standards the people that are writing those compliance standards are actually becoming, you know, more pragmatic about uh, about being able to solve uh, solve these problems instead of just having sort of a, a checkbox for checkbox sake. Um, so that's that's one of the things that I've seen is is actually like a much more relaxed definition of different types of solutions, so that on the you know on the actual sort of security engineering side or or let, let's let's call it the um, security side that's focused not just on on checking the checkbox. They really can start to say, "Hey, this, this functionality that we have here that's really solving the core problem that the you know the sort of spirit of what the the compliance checkbox was was trying to to, to check, like we're able to actually still check the the compliance checkbox even if it's not falling into that exact definition because they're either changing the definition to make it more more relaxed, um, or, or I think." Uh, you know, the, the actual auditors themselves are starting to understand and get smarter about um, being able to be lax on those things. Um, so I think that's that's been a really a really great uh, change to the that sort of <laughs> part of auditor versus security. Um, I, I think the other thing that, that you brought up in even in, in some of those examples, which is like, look, I don't actually care necessarily about like rolling rolling creds every 60 or 90 days i really care about when someone has actually compromised those credentials because that's ultimately what what is the root of the problem that you're trying to identify so focusing then and trying to get capabilities around detecting when that happens and then ideally having some sort of automated response to be able to to actively respond to that issue that's really where like the technology-based or the sort of engineering-based security group goes immediately to saying, that's how we identify that problem. That's how we solve it. Um, and uh, th that is heads and shoulders or light years ahead of where we were five years ago of just being like, oh, well, we have this basic change control in place. So, you know, everything's good. Yeah. We're also seeing security, from my perspective at least, emerge in different directions as far as you have, I don't know, a a system that's designed to do one thing, but you take a look at what its permissions are scoped for and it, it has the capability to do an awful lot of other things. Now, on the one hand, there's the first approach of, hey, how about we alert when it does any of those other things, which is great and handy and useful, but in some ways the better approach might almost be, why don't we take away those excess powers that it doesn't need? Uh, the principle of least privilege seems to have, in some respects, fallen by the wayside. And I don't think it's intentional. I think it often starts as, oh, we're going to make it work, so we're going to start with a broad scope and we'll come back in step two and narrow it down. But we never get to step two. It gets dropped and we move on to other burning fires. 
Yeah, I. Uh, it, it, this is a tough one because we've we've sort of lived this in practice from from again sort of previous lives where, look, if you if you are sort of living in this this sort of DevOps world, which to me, you know, I think a lot of it is about sort of developer empowerment and really being able to actually change who the the power groups within within these, um, you know, ultimately sort of political organizations are, which is like. You know, the, the folks that ran hardware used to have a lot of that power because they had huge budgets to buy big hardware pieces. And now a lot of the investment money is actually going into the development organization and, and actually building software. And so guess what? The power is going over there as well. So the the sort of default, I think, uh, the default attitude from a lot of those groups is to basically say, I should have access to everything to be able to do anything I want at any time, because if I don't have access to everything, then I, it'll slow me down and I can't do anything. Um, so a, yeah, you want to be able to empower people to do things and, and move fast and be able to get access to things, but like, you got to have a responsible kind of, uh, conversation around that, which is, I, I really think sort of things like GDPR are really lending themselves to saying, okay, well, it, especially if we're th thinking about this from a data access perspective, let, let's, let's really think about sort of privacy and data privacy by design being something that we implement at the beginning, such that, um, uh, you know, we, we, we can not only limit sort of access for different people internally to different types of data sets, which I think is just a great thing to do from a security hygiene perspective in the first place. Um, but, but it's also, you know, actually falling into this compliance standard that, that, that we need to follow now because of things like GDPR. So this is, this is where the, the these are these, these, uh, I think good changes that are happening in the industry right now, as it relates to how we're thinking about sort of implementing new types of compliance standards. I, I think they're new compliance standards. I think they give a lot of people headaches, I think sometimes, but I think the, the intent of what they're trying to do is good, not only for consumers and, and, and sort of access to the data around that, but I think it's also good just as a basic engineering practice to make it so that not everybody has access to all different types of data internally. No, I, I think that you're absolutely right. There's, it's an evolving question about what the, I guess, what the right security posture is and how that winds up mapping to an individual organization's needs and requirements. The hard part is figuring out where people fall on that spectrum. And then, of course, figuring out how you're going to invest in that before you get to the point right after you really, really, really should have been investing in this. Yeah, I, well, and it's, you know, to, to be totally fair, it's not an easy conversation. It's not an easy change, I think, for people to make because they, they, there are there are meaningful trade-offs between access to data and speed versus uh, versus privacy and security architecture or, or sort of responsible security architecture. And I am actually not in the camp of saying I'm going to dictate this is exactly how it should be this way or the other. But I think at the very least... Things like GDPR, again, I think are forcing people to have these conversations and it's good to just have the conversation because let's put it this way. If you want to go down one road and you're going to say, hey, you know, this is going to be our philosophy and we're going to make this decision. At least you're making that consciously to say we understand that this is a more risky path to go on because we are making a lot of these tools or a lot of this data or a lot of these systems, whatever you want to call it, like a lot of these things available to more sets of people internally than we would on a you know on a on a decision that would actually be more sort of optimized around less people having that 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 data, but you've made that consciously and you've actually had that conversation internally. Where I think, you know, in the past the default was just to be like, look, we don't even need to have that conversation because it just wasn't even something that people were thinking about at the beginning. 
Um, and, and they probably would have made different changes or they, they might have made different decisions uh, on on that architecture or on those, um, you know, on those on those poli- sort of internal policy decisions um, if they had had that conversation in the first place. I think that it's it's always a hard part to wind up getting buy in. And to some extent, a company's security posture is almost entirely going to be dictated by how effectively information security leadership is at articulating a vision and telling a story. If we want to be cynical about it, we could even extend that to spreading fear, uncertainty, and doubt around what could possibly happen and scaremongering in order to drum up budget. I mean, hey, whatever it takes. Yep. I, I, I mean, I think it comes back to, again, these are actually, it's nice to have some recurrent themes, I think, in what we're talking about, but it's those those teams and security teams uh, that, that I've seen have way more success at being able to either create a culture of security that's that's more, um, you know, more embraced internally um, and, and or just creating um, kind of tie-ins with other different business units internally are the ones that are able to show and use sort of visibility, like basically making investments into visibility around what actual attackers are doing across their system um, versus just kind of, again, sitting there and saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, we need to focus on security. And you know, if, they, if people aren't, then they just revert into this, well, nobody ever cares about security and you know, we're never gonna get anything done unless we have buy-in from the top. Uh, you know, it's, it's just not, it, I don't think that's an effective route to do things and I, think, I, I don't think it ever will, but being able to use data and use sort of real-time uh, information and, and, and visibility, again, that you can point to, to all these teams internally to say like, look, this isn't a theoretical thing. This is a real thing that we are being attacked in these different places all the time. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna be smart about how we set up our security programs to make it so that it doesn't hinder your job. Ideally, it would actually help you do your job better, but at the very least, we're gonna make this stuff so easy and really understand your goals as different business units internally to make sure that we're not impacting those goals. Like, yeah, like that is a completely different way to approach that discussion rather than just being, you know, the, the guys that say no to everybody all the time. Absolutely. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. If people want to hear more about what you folks are up to, where can they find you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, if, I think everybody kind of runs, uh, at this point, everybody's building some type of software. Everybody's running some type of web application or, or service. Uh, you know, all these themes that we're talking about today really kind of fit into what we're talking about, which is, um, we help give you visibility over, yeah, the, the people that are trying to impact or attack those different, um, you know, layer seven architectures that you guys have. You can come find out more at signalsciences.com. Pro- promise we won't <laughs> browbeat you with too much vendor speak. People will hold you to that. Thanks again for taking the time to speak with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much, Corey. Andrew Peterson, CEO of Signal Sciences. I'm Corey Quinn. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold. This has been a HumblePod production. Stay humble.